Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. No cartridge. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbond on Twitter, and I'm here actually by myself today. I'm doing a little bit of a solo show. Uh, we took a week off last week, partially because of uh, I don't know a lot of the the bad feelings and controversy that came up after the uh, the the death of Alec Coloca. Um, you know, I think I've talked enough about this online, and other people have talked about it online enough too. I would urge you to read uh, um, uh, Scott's. Uh, Scott Benson's account of his relationship with Alec um, and sort of the mixed feelings and the the difficult nature of the whole thing. Um, he's going to do much better than I can. Uh, he's a medium piece up at his Twitter at bombsfall. Um, but at the same point, um, we do need to come back. And, uh, you know, in my time away, I noticed a lot of things happening um, in video game discourse and sort of like around video game discourse. And I wanted to... Um, thought it might be nice to recontextualize things a little bit, uh, particularly in terms of what exactly it is that uh, we do here vis-a-vis um, -vis, like criticism and placing this within like the realm of, say, literary criticism. So um, I wanted to start off with thinking about uh, like basically gaming discourse is in terms of like other mediums that have come come into the world. So, um, you know, you compare, say, video game discourse or video game criticism to literary criticism or criticisms of novels or criticisms of poems or anything like that. Um, and it's very easy to get sort of uh, discouraged because video game criticism is, you know, notably, uh, I don't know, lacking is probably the wrong word, but uh, it's a little less than... Uh, let's say that much. Uh, you know, one thing that is wrong with video game criticism at the moment is that most of what it does is produce readings of games, which is to say, you know, uh, I'll play Celeste and say Celeste is a, uh, a trenchant take on depression or something like that, right? And I'll, I'll read the game uh, via that playthrough. Um, or uh, it's an account of the creator's politics, uh, you know. Uh, this person has good politics and the game's worth buying. This person has bad politics and the game's not worth buying. Um, 
you know, there's there's good reasons to be doing this. I think, like, especially the recent discourse around Randy Pitchford is is worth having and around a lot of games creators. Obviously, uh, I mentioned at the top of the show the controversy around Alec, and, and that was a controversy that was widespread. We talked about this on Patch Notes. Um, around uh, men in the industry uh, behaving uh, in very, very unacceptable ways. Um, and, 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 you know, abusing and, and harassing people. Uh, so, of course, like, yes, we want to talk about the people's politics. But while a lot of the people I like and I'm friends with uh, in gaming have created great games uh, and I like their politics, uh, that doesn't mean that everyone with good politics is going to create an aesthetically good game. And it doesn't mean that everyone with bad politics is going to create a game that has no aesthetic, aesthetic interest at all. Um, you know, there are a lot of games that are quite interesting made by really terrible people and vice versa. So... You know, this is seems like a video game problem in some ways where you sort of say, well, you know, what do you do in, with a with a, a medium that has, uh, you know, so many people, uh, so much of a personal connection, uh, so much of the individual front and center. Um, and then I think you have to just say, like, well, this is a problem with every medium, right? People with good politics produce terrible novels. Um, you know, I really, really hate that Ishmael novel by, um, uh, I think it's by Daniel Quinn. Uh, and I, I think it's awful. Um, Quinn probably has environmental politics. I would, uh, totally agree with, uh, I don't necessarily love all the ideas in that book, but certainly the environmental politics right on, uh, the book itself is garbage. It's real bad. No offense. If you like it, if you like it, I mean, taste wise, it's fine, but as a literary piece, uh, it, it, it's just a, it's a pamphlet. It's not really a novel. Um, it is, it is barely Socratic. Um, you know, in, on the other hand, um, you look at some of the politics of people like, um, oh, I'm trying to think of a good, of a good author here. Oh, I mean like, uh, Anthony Trollope, uh, is a good example or, um, Honor de Balzac, um, you know, masses of Marxist literature has been, uh, or Marxist literary criticism has been, uh, related to reading these people and saying like, you know, Balzac was, uh, by all accounts, kind of like a bougie, uh, landlord type, uh, petty bourgeois sort of, uh, I don't know, uh, elite. Uh, and he wrote books that absolutely expose the class distinctions and class, uh, animosity between the elite and the, uh, the working class. Uh, same with uh, same with Trollope. Actually, perhaps even more with Trollope. Uh, same with Tolstoy. You know, like the question of like, do these people have good politics is less important than the question of do their novels have good politics? And that kind of distinction, right? Does the piece itself have good politics versus does the author have good politics is a really hard one to make, and it's one we haven't quite figured out in video games yet. So one of the things I was thinking about was, okay, so like, why can't we do it? Um, it's not as if, uh, you know, it's not as if I feel like I'm doing such a good job and no one else is. It's not as if, um, I feel like there are, uh, specifically people in gaming that are holding us back. Um, you know, gaming has become this fraught space post Gamergate, uh, particularly, but I mean, it's just a space that we should be able to perform readings in and, and, and work in. Uh, the fact that we can't sort of gave me pause. So the fact that we don't, let's say, not can't. There are good readings out there. Um, I feel like I've done some good readings. I feel like lots of people have done good readings. Um, but what I realized on my week off was that 
video games are in a place similar to the novel uh, in the uh, basically the mid 17th and early 18th century. Uh, so you're talking about like be like you know for a loose loose estimate. Don't hold me on this. Uh, it would be like 1650 to 1700. This is where we're at uh, with the novel. But think about, uh, or this is, hmm, how to say this? This is where video games are if we compared them to the novel, right? They're a fairly young medium in the in the grand scheme of things. I mean, even if you want to trace it back to, uh, I don't know, like if you want to trace it back to the card collectible card game that Nintendo company started out as even that is an extraordinarily young medium. Uh, the novel itself is over 400, 500 years old. Uh, poetry is, is millennia old, uh, drama, same. Uh, these are massively, massively old mediums that, you know, totally are, uh, are different than, um, than the, uh, the newish medium of the video game. Um, so, I mean, real quick, uh, just to clarify this, let me talk about why that's important. Um, you can mark the beginning of the novel in a number of places, right? This is a very controversial question. What is the first novel? Uh, some people say Robinson Crusoe is the first novel. Some people will say Tom Jones is the first novel. Some people will say uh, um, Clarissa by uh, Samuel Richardson is the first novel. Uh, some people even say that um, Orinoco by Afra Bain is the first novel, um, though I'm kind of split on that because it's more of a short story. Uh, it's a little tricky, but there are a lot of things that could be the first novel. Um, if you're ever into getting into comic books, uh, reading about the first graphic novel, this is the same thing that comes up. I mean, think about the, the question you'd have if you asked someone what the first video game was. It would be nearly impossible to figure out. Um, but whatever you do, however you mark the beginning of the novel... Um, you are, uh, you're looking at like the beginning and then the first, say like 50 to 75 years as this, maybe even 50 to 150 years as this kind of solidifying of the medium, this way that the medium actually finds its feet. Um, and within that, there are a number of sort of like alternate paths it could have taken. The novel wasn't always going to be the novel as we know it. Um, you know, if you read old books like um, uh, like like Tom Jones's uh, um, Henry Fielding, um, considered by some to be the first novel, uh, you'll find these like weird moments where they're just kind of like the authors are just like, yeah, I don't know what we're doing here. Um, uh, Fielding writes uh, just a brief quote. This is on 65 of my copy. It's a uh, book two, chapter one of, of Henry Fielding. Um, he says, my reader then is not to be surprised in the course of this work. He shall find some chapters very short and others altogether as long. Some that contain only the time of a single day, others that comprise years. In a word, if my history sometimes seems to stand still and sometimes to fly for all which I shall not look on myself as accountable to any court of critical jurisdiction, whatever. For as I am, in reality, the founder of a new province of writing, so I am at liberty to make what laws I please therein. And, you know, Fielding is speaking tongue-in-cheek, of course, but this is absolutely, like, something he was concerned about, the the, the unity of the of the piece, right? Like, oh, every is every chapter going to be five pages long? Is every chapter going to cover one day? Is every chapter going to cover... Eight years like this question was absolutely of the moment and fielding basically says like yeah it's just all going to be all over the place but that's what i think it should be he could have very well have said the exact opposite um 
And so, like, how novels become what we recognize them as is actually, like, a really important study, uh, or I'm sorry, a really important question to study, a really important uh, direction of study within literary studies. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of ways you can understand the history of the novel, uh, but the three sort of most canonical ways, right, are through these three thinkers. Uh, Michael McKeon, who wrote um, Origins of the English Novel, very famous, very massive text. Uh, Ian Watt, who wrote Rise of the Novel, um, and Nancy Armstrong, who wrote Desire and Domestic Fiction. Uh, there are others, of course, uh, and in fact, all three of these sort of suffer from uh, being a bit too Eurocentric and a bit too white, uh, but you know, within the questioning of what do we think of when we think of the history of the novel, academia can be slow to act. So these are still the the, the main ones. Uh, so McKeon, uh, just again, brief background. McKeon's historicist, which is in, which means he cares about sort of like what actually happened with the novel itself. Like where you know, can we track the time down? Can we track you know what changed over time? What 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 differed? What stayed the same? Um, he is looking for purely formal shifts to explain the historical trajectory of the novel. So for him, the 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 difference between Tom Jones's novel and, uh, say, Samuel Richardson's Clarissa, which is told through a series of letters, that's like huge for him. It's it, these are these are two formally distinct things, and the way they converge into the novel itself, what it is, is like you know the story for for McKeon. For what? Um, He's a political thinker. He explores and mobilizes capitalism to explain the rise of the novel. And so it probably should come as no surprise that he's a Marxist. Um, his sort of way of thinking uh, is absolutely present in games criticism, both good and bad. Um, I think this podcast is a good example. Waypoint, Kotaku, um, all of these things kind of take the idea of uh, capitalism and use it to explain the evolution of gaming uh, in the same way that Watt says that um, – you know, uh, mercantilism and differing uh, uh, economic uh, trade routes and such uh, helped cause the rise of the novel. Not just helped explain, but helped cause the rise of the novel. Something that a medium in Watts' imagination that is purely and like specifically uh, referential to capitalism. Um, however, this uh, way of criticism also has a risk of becoming a shibboleth uh, in a sense of like, Every game and every novel becomes judged on its class politics, which can produce didacticism instead of aesthetics. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Some people would want uh, games to be didactic as opposed to aesthetically interesting. Um, some people would want novels to be that way. We could talk about that a bit later. However, just put a pin in that now because I think that is something of a risk. Um, and I'll explain why it ties back to our situation uh, very soon. Finally, uh, Armstrong is kind of like... Uh, sort of like the last person to show up uh, is Armstrong. She Her work is, is later than both uh, McKeon and Watts. Um, but uh, she also is, uh, she's kind of like the first wave of games criticism. Uh, she has a Foucauldian take, an idea that sort of like uh, novels uh, operate upon the, the genealogy of power um, and, and, you know, both... Uh, let's see if I can do Foucault in a really short way, uh, both call into existence and then reinforce power. Um, it's echoed in a lot of the early ludonarrative analysis of video games where the idea is uh, analysts trying to figure out, okay, like, so what, what do video games do? What is their, what is their purpose? How do they, how do they produce meaning um, within the systems of, of, you know, production that they represent? Um but uh, I think it's also something that is an extreme issue today vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, 
these should be quote unquote just games or these SJWs or like they're after our culture. The issue of power and who wields it and who should wield it is absolutely an issue. So what's the point of me telling you all this? Let's get to that. So the novel in its transition to what we know today wasn't always destined to be the novel. That's sort of what I brought up. And in fact, this initial novel is so hard to pin down in part because the definition of what it was was so fraught to begin with. So the bit I read from Tom Jones, uh, Henry Fielding. Uh, <laughs> did I say that was Henry Fielding by Tom Jones? I'm not actually going to correct that because that is so embarrassing. But uh, uh, it is Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. You can tell I'm not working on my normal amount of sleep. Um uh, but the bit I, I read from Fielding, right, like the bit I read from Tom Jones is, um, you know, Fielding says that the, uh, the, the, the the novel itself is sort of this like weird thing that he's coming up with on his own. And a lot of people were coming up with their version of the novel at the same point. Um, Robinson Crusoe, as I said before, is sort of like a bit of a diary. There are epistolary novels, which are uh, uh, letters to each other, Richardson, um, uh, 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 Tristram Shandy um, is a perfect example of like a novel that looks like an experimental novel of the recent of recent years, and in part because it was experimenting, it was trying to figure out what this format was and what it would look like. People knew what a poem was, people knew what a song was, people knew what a play was, but this new thing was very very confusing. And games, surprisingly enough, are still in this play phase. Like, we imagine they've been around for long enough so that we know what a game is and what it isn't. But ultimately, if you look at them in the long view, they've been around for 30 to 40 years. Um, maybe 50 if you stretch. Um, and if you really want to stretch, if you take, like, a super long durée view, uh, say 150, right? Um Novels weren't consistently in the format we expect to see them in for perhaps a century or more after their inception. And even now the debate rages on. You can find a lot of people arguing that something is or is not a novel. Um, thinking uh, in graduate school, a lot of people would write collections of short stories that they would say acted as a novel. Uh, and people would challenge that. Like, is it a novel or is it not a novel? Are these just short stories? Um, a good example for this is um, uh, the novel A Visit from the Goon Squad, which is a great novel. Um it's a bunch of short stories, basically, but they coalesce enough to be a novel. Uh, similar uh, would be uh, Lovecraft Country, uh, another really excellent novel uh, by Matt Ruff. Um, sorry, I actually neglected to say who wrote A Visit to the Goon Squad, A Visit from the Goon Squad, excuse me, and that's Jennifer Egan. Uh, but both of these novels are short stories, but also novels. And is, you know, a long poem a novel? Does... Uh, does it have to take the uh, the form of a series of, you know, chapters of indiscriminate length, as uh, Fielding would suggest? Or can it be one extremely long chapter, as someone like James Joyce might argue? Um, novels are still being debated today, and they are how many years, how many centuries old at this point? It's no surprise that people are up in arms about what games are and aren't. There is no historical reason that they should be, <laughs> uh, this debate should be settled. Um, so in the other in other words, the question of what is and isn't a game is not nearly as self-evident as either, you know, uh, experimental, uh, games creators would want us to believe or extraordinarily conservative games, uh, people would want us to believe either. Um, even if I would of course side much more with the experimental end of things, you know, arguing that something is or isn't a game self-evidently is just kind of a mistake at this point. And also, if you think about outside of the formal, the battle for the soul of games is a moral scare that happened in the novel as well. So, you know, you see people arguing about 
what games are, who who should be making these games, are you know getting social justice into games, getting gender into games, uh, bringing in politics into games, uh, or rather. Uh, you know, focusing too much on difficulty modes, focusing too much on alienating your players instead of providing access. Um, these arguments take on a moral tone, which basically becomes like, you know, games had an initial audience. Should we cater to that initial audience uh, as they imagine themselves? Or on the other hand, should we accept that that initial audience was not nearly as uh, limited as we once believed and that Contemporary games are providing representation and access that uh, needs to be expanded. Um, again, much more. I that the latter point is my position, but both sides are arguing with each other, and this question of limiting versus expansion is something that happened with novels as well. Like novels were initially when they came out seen as uh, corrupting forces. Like reading a novel would be the same thing as like I don't know. Uh, I mean, some novels like. Um, uh, uh, Madame Bovary uh, were seen as like, um, or Lady Chatterley's Lover uh, in the 20th century. If you want to imagine like how controversial these things can actually be, this 20th century novel um, it was seen as pornographic. Uh, pornographic not just because of what they describe, but because of their moral uh, impact or their perceived moral impact on women. Right? Uh, the sentimental novel was a craze in the 18th century. Uh, because it was basically just instructive. It was didactic. It told women, you know, behave well and behave like a nor- like a like a chaste and pious woman, or this could happen to you. Is like usually what happens. There's a chaste and pious woman in the story. She does something wrong and she usually dies. Um, you know, novels are seen as corrupting to women unless they are didactic, and they're corrupting as opposed to poetry and religion, which are. Um, known quantities uh, you know reading homer is fine uh it is educating it gives you something that these people recognize the novel is just this strange vulgar um common tongued form that anyone can pick up and anyone can learn from and it bothers people a lot uh newer novels are also seen as lewd and dangerous so not just chatterley's lover but take like gothic literature frankenstein uh, you know, even actually before Frankenstein, uh, Mary Shelley's mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, wrote a book called Mariah or the Wrongs of Women. Um, it, I, the Monk is a famous one. I'm just going to start naming gothic novels if you don't stop me, so I won't do that. But, I mean, you can even think of something like um, Wuthering Heights. I mean, these are seen as lewd or dangerous, uh, strange, weird, uh, unholy, uh, heretical, whatever. Um, there are critiques to be made of these dark novels by people of the time. They're seen as like, you know, this is going to cause people to act strangely in the same way we hear about video games. Uh, novels by women are often seen as frivolous, uh, less serious, less important, uh, meant for like uh, light fare, gossiping, um, penny dreadfuls, uh, which is sort of like the the uh, schlock of the day. <laughs> uh, you know, something that you read if you're not reading a serious novel by a serious man. And I mean, novels even using non-standard English. Uh, Tristram Shandy's an early version of this, but, you know, especially... Uh, when black novelists start uh, including non-standard English in their work, and then later on, um, you know, uh, Asian novelists, Indian novelists, uh, I've seen the use of Tagalog in a wonderful novel called um, Troublemakers. Like, this is, um, it's like absolutely a a huge issue for people. The idea of like, should you include non-standard English? Should it just be all straightforward English? Or is it okay to include like, 
stuff that your average English reader is not going to understand. Um, you know, all of these things echo stuff in gaming, which is like, should uh, we be just, should we be, you know, force, forcibly diversifying this space to allow for people, uh, you know, women, uh, non-cis people, uh, queer people, uh, people of color, like, should we be diversifying the space to allow them a space to feel comfortable and represented in gaming? Or should we uh, focus on the way gaming was in order to refine it into, you know, what it existed as prior to that? Again, like, absolutely, I believe in the expansion version, the inclusion version. And I don't agree with the uh, conservative version there. But those are the two sides. And that they represent the two sides in the same way that the novel does is fascinating to me. In other words, if we're thinking about games, we should be thinking about them in the context of their development as an art form, not even necessarily as some sort of like capitalistic widget, although they certainly are, but that's everything in the world. Um, we should be thinking about them in terms of an art form, and they're very early in that development, especially if we imagine them as literary and uh, primarily. Like if we imagine them visually, visual art has a way of developing incredibly quickly. And in some ways, this is because the actual mediums of visual art, that is to say painting, sculpture, uh, you know, lithograph are fairly old to begin with. Uh, photography caused quite a stir. Uh, the questions of whether or not a photograph could be art were, uh, I mean, you can imagine how raging they became, but they were extremely controversial. Um, but, you know, visual art kind of moves a little faster. Uh, literary art, uh, which I think gaming kind of looks a little more like. Uh, we could, I could have a whole episode on that, though. Um, it moves a little more slowly. And so even if we haven't nailed down um, what games should be, we haven't even actually, like, we shouldn't actually feel bad about that because I don't think we have even nailed down what canonically a game is. Like, the definition of the medium is not particularly clear, which is to say all the sort of tired arguments about walking simulators are tired, but they serve a fairly useful purpose in developing the discourse around games. You know, this doesn't change my focus, though, in a maximal sense. It's not like no cartridge is going to change. This is more just an introspective point of thinking, you know, we have these arguments and it feels so hopeless. It feels like a terrible discourse, a terrible art form. At times, it feels completely uncaring and completely awful. Um, and, and it is. In a lot of ways, it is. Uh, you know, the, the controversies, the, the, the space itself, it feels kind of hopeless at times. But this is an extremely early point in this development. Um, you know, the games are going to develop and change in ways we can't really conceive of yet. And anyone who says there's some sort of cultural battle for gaming is selling you a bill of goods. Um, now, I mean, most of the time, this is a conservative kind of politics, right? Like a cultural battle for gaming would be like, you know, let's keep gaming the way it is. Like, let's keep, you know, gaming for gamers, right? But the other arm is, is to say, like, new games like, um, uh, you know, like a Souls game or something like that um, is is necessarily bad for, for gaming because it, it represents a an outdated version of difficulty and progression, right? Both of these just don't make any sense because the soul of gaming, such as it is, the cultural uh, signifier of gaming is not pinned down. It is shifting. It is fluid. Just like the cultural uh, quality of the novel is shifting. It's fluid. Like, these things are not static. And if anyone's telling you they are, this is simply a comfort. If 
if you're worried about gaming changing, I really have bad news for you. It has been changing since day one and will continue to for a long time before it even has a semblance of stability. The idea of a traditional novel is something that truly wasn't around until probably the 19th century. Um, that's 150 years, give or take. The idea of a quote-unquote traditional game holding any weight may be well, well down the line. And the plenitude of games available means, you know, unlike with novels, right? Uh, the printing press was a huge deal, but novels could not be produced as easily and, let's say, actually produced as the wrong word, distributed. Distribution is the big thing. Novels could not be distributed in the same way that games are today. And so, so many games are out there, more games than anyone has any possibility of playing. And so we complain about this. We complain about our long Steam lists or our, you know, how many games we have to play, whatever. Oh, I bought another game in the sale. I'm never going to play that. Like, you know, this plenitude of games, both AAA and independent, means that genres are certainly not at a risk of dying out. You can't name a genre that is truly about to die out. Um, there are genres that have dipped in popularity. Rhythm games uh, came up recently as, a, as an example of this. Adventure games are something that is like, you know, we, we talked with uh, uh, Grudislav Games about this. Like the, the, the rise and fall of popularity is a thing. But there's no real danger of a formal narrowing anytime soon. No real danger of, you know, a classic shooter disappearing. Um, Yes, you know, the Ion Storm stuff was extremely bad and represented sort of a low point in discourse uh, with what they said about uh, trans and, and gay people in their discord uh, and all the sort of like stuff they kept in just because a regressive arm of the gaming populace wanted them to. Uh, but it also shows that people still want Quake games, right? Like, you can think back to any version of the game. The platformer is alive. The 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 sort of like classic first person shooter is alive. The mission based first person shooter is alive. The um the uh the action adventure games alive. The uh, pure adventure games alive. The visual novels alive. Text based adventures are alive. Everything is still existing because gaming can just be produced, and so. It's arguable that a formal narrowing will never happen if this distribution is so easy. If it's that easy to produce your games, why ever stop producing the ones you want? So this is all a way of saying that inclusion of other voices in gaming, which is to say non-white, non-male, non-cis, however you want to imagine it, but you know the, the sort of terms that lack uh, representation in gaming, it's a long durée. It's a process. It's a thing that's going to happen over time, whether you like it or not. And it's a thing that we should encourage to happen. It's not going to result in, you know, what I think uh, some people, particularly in the uh, stupid poll left, um, uh, you know, I, I know that uh, people uh, like, I think, uh, Jonathan Daniel Brown of, of formerly of Struggle Session, um, uh, some others that probably aren't, you know, worth mentioning right now, Um have this fear of identity politics somehow infecting left discourse and ruining us, right? Which, you know, I took my doctorate at UIC, which is like the home in some ways of anti-identity politics theory. I know how it works. And uh, I believe in a lot of it, which is to say that capital can co-opt uh, identity politics. The idea of hiring uh, more black people or having a game written by like, a trans person is not 
that's not id that's not id politics it's not woke scold it's not you know ignoring material conditions or something it's just representative uh, politics it doesn't have to be revolutionary it doesn't have to be what's going to get us out of capitalism it can simply be just a good thing and in fact it's going to produce a more nuanced and open space for what it's maligned i mean like people don't like contemporary art and contemporary literature but contemporary art and contemporary literature is extraordinarily vi- like vital it has a lot of stuff going for it it's a beautiful uh collection of fascinating genre works fascinating experimental works fascinating turns towards the traditional you know we hear a lot about franzen or whatever but like we don't hear about the egans and ruffs and uh that's a real shame like there are brilliant people writing right now and they should be uh you know teju cole like teju cole it should be as much a name as jonathan franzen or um yeah anyone we sort of like complain about online uh and he's not and you know i don't know why but at the same point even without that sort of recognition contemporary literature and contemporary art are producing wonderful work and it's not you know sterile it's not uh uninteresting it's not aesthetically bad because all of a sudden there's more representation in it it simply is more capacious and being more capacious is not the same thing as not being important or not being materially relevant finally last point the moral quality of games makers is being and must be divided from the games themselves as aesthetic objects and this division is actually you know fraught because of course like sometimes we don't want to sometimes we want to draw a line in the sand and say like hey look i'm not going to be reading an ayn rand book even to critique it i don't like her i don't like her politics i don't like her personally i don't like her ideas i don't want to read that book and it's like that's fine you know what that is fine the thing we have to understand though is that sort of critique which is a perfectly legitimate critique is not an aesthetic critique right um if i want to say i don't want to play borderlands 3 because of randy pitchford that is perfectly acceptable and in fact like maybe even admirable it depends on who you'd ask but you know sure um i don't want to play game i don't want to play ion storm for instance like i i don't i don't care like i don't really want to play it uh, I will not be supporting it. You know, that's that's the kind of thing that, you know, I do sometimes too. Like I, you know, uh, I, I won't draw a line in the sand and say which ones I will and which ones I won't. But everyone has their their limits and everyone, you know, uh, buys things that they like and, and will refuses to support people they don't. And that's fine. Like I think that's perfectly reasonable. Um, and even if you, you know, say it were you don't like socialism and you don't want to support me or whatever, right? Like that's fine. That's totally okay. That's a kind of argument. It's sort of like a taste argument and a moral argument and an ethics argument. Uh, it is not an argument about aesthetics, however, which is important because this is a quality in art that is consistently part of the tension that produces good analysis and good art. I've talked to a lot of creators I like and whose games I like, but the two don't need to be connected. I don't have to like Scott, for instance, in order for Night in the Woods to be good. I can think he's a total jerk and Night in the Woods can still be good, right? I have had some uh, unpleasant conversations. I wouldn't say we've had, we fought, but I've had some, you know, relatively unpleasant conversations with the guy who uh, wrote the Talos Principle. And I think he's a, you know, whatever. I don't think he's a bad guy, um, but we don't see eye to eye on everything. And I think the Talos Principle is great. Like, I liked that game. If you read my article on it in Nonsite, it's mostly complimentary. I think it's a great game. Um... 
it doesn't matter if you like the people who's, who are producing the art necessarily. You can stop buying their games, but any aesthetic critique is about what the game is as opposed to what the creators are. And where that stops is super interesting and super productive of analysis and something that we really should be thinking about. Putting aside the social perception of frivolity, childishness, and unseriousness of games is also going to be double-edged. Games are going to become more accepted over time, but people who are able to create within the scope of that acceptance will shrink. So formal narrowing may seem like a great thing because it's always we're going to get legitimacy as a form for video games, but it's just going to be sort of like a tricky, hard growing pain uh, filled process um ultimately the pointed and aggressive pushes towards differing futures in games making uh the idea of just like positing a direction forward and producing it until you can't produce it anymore um which is of course how the novel developed uh you know branching off tributaries that end tributaries that turn into their own versions of the novel modernism postmodernism formalism realism um this is going to happen in games too uh, walking simulators were probably the first version of this. It, like, it's fascinating how the true, true walking simulator had its moment as if like it was going to be the next move in games and then receded. And this is so similar to stuff like realism and, and naturalism where like this is the moment and then it recedes. It is a historical moment. It is not a new direction for the form necessarily. Um, they're going to continue though. All of these pushes forward are going to continue because the future of the form is up for debate. It's not, however, likely to fall in formal and aesthetic ways we or our conservative opponents can quite yet imagine. And I think it's important when working out our feelings towards gaming that we remain open to these potential futures because, of course, it's very easy to imagine that we're going to be stuck in this position of, I don't know, uh, uh problematic and and frustrating and bad political um, actors uh, for all time, or if you're a more conservative thinker, that we're going to be dealing with, uh, you know, the, the, the cancel culture or whatever you want to say of games forever as well. These things aren't forever. This is something that will be produced, I don't know, over time, and it will be something we don't know. The, the future of games is something we're not going to understand. Let's put it that way. It's something we can't predict. It's something that we're going to have to watch happen. And that's the interest of the analysis. So while there are moral truths and ethical truths and things that I will argue for on the show, it's kind of refreshing, I guess, to step back and take an aesthetic look at this. Because, of course, you know, I'm not going to buy Iron Storm. Probably not going to. I don't think I'm going to buy a Borderlands 3. Like, I don't like these creators and I think they are, you know, morally problematic and I don't want to support them. Uh, but that is a different argument. And it's really interesting for me and maybe hopefully for you too, to sort of step back and say, oh yeah, like these are different arguments, both good arguments to have, but they're different. Anyway, I hope that was helpful for you too. It's something that I wanted to get off my chest and it's something that I wanted to get off my mind. And maybe you learned a little bit about the history of the novel too. Um, if you liked what you heard, uh, always patreon.com slash no cartridge is a good place to go at Hagelbond is a good place to follow me. Um, and yeah, I hope you're here next week. Uh, we'll probably be back to more normal uh, 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 programming. All right. Take care.